we're going to be in Psalm 73 tonight, so if you want to go ahead and, and, uh, and find your way there. Um, I don't know how your Thanksgiving went, but mine involved a, uh, a 12-hour drive down to South Georgia to, to be with my, uh, with my side of the family. Um, my, uh, my, my mom's sister and her husband live on about 1,100 acres in South Georgia. It's fantastic. That's very different from where we are right now. Um, my family, obviously, you know, six kids, it's a lot of us. We, uh, I see that smile. Uh, we, we live in St. Matthews and we're about 10 feet from our neighbors on either side. So they go outside, we know it. Uh, they fight, we know it. We fight, they know it. So it, it's completely different than what we just got out of. Um, but it was, it was awesome. My kids could actually run around, scream, and be kids, and I didn't have to go, shh, the whole neighborhood doesn't know, need to know that we're here. Um, but one of the highlights was one of my cousins actually bagged a deer while we were there. It was awesome, and here's why. My kids got to see where their food comes from. It was, it was really cool. Um, so they get a deer, and they go to dress them. And... Um, <laughs> I've got one kid that is just full on engaged in this process, engrossed in this process. They're, you know, cutting it and pulling the skin and she's just like bugging out like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) So she's engrossed in it. I've got another one that is grossed out and says, I'm out of here and goes and finds a pile of dirt to go play in. So number one, number two, number three is kind of standing there real stoic, not real sure what to think of this whole process. He's not grossed out. You can tell the wheels are turning, but he's just, he's, he's looking at it and he's like, okay, thanks dad for making me stand here. And then I've got one that I swear is doing like some tribal sacrificial dance in front of it, screaming and just taking it all in. Um, but they all had a different response to it. But all four of them had their perspective changed on food and where it comes from, right? Holy cow, we eat cows. Um, is that what they do to cows? Yes, honey, it is. Um, but they all had their perspective changed. There were no nightmares, fortunately. Um, but much like my kids got to see their food in a very different light, Psalm 73, the the writer here peels back the curtain and and shows us and gives us a a look into what a a godly and a God word perspective looks like. Um, He he in this psalm is wrapped up in envy. And by the end of it, he he is satisfied in God and he's declared himself, that's his goal, is to be near God. And God's nearness is his good. Um, so we're going to read Psalm 73, and then uh, we'll, we'll get into the text. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw all the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. 
They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there no knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God God, my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Even though this psalm, he starts it off in in verse 3 and makes it very clear that what's he struggling with? What's he he battling? He's battling envy. He's envious of the wicked and and how things go for them versus how things go for God's people. Um, Even though he's very particular in kind of the strand of envy he's talking about, I think there's some principles that we can pull out of the text that help us battle envy when it pops up in our lives. Um, So, How do we fight envy in all the various forms it takes when we see it in our lives? Uh, I think there's two things that that Psalm 73 teaches us. The first way to fight envy is to recognize your perspective is limited. Your perspective is limited. Uh, We see this uh, in our own lives, don't we? Anybody have a Twitter account? Anybody have a Facebook account? Instagram, MySpace, on down the line, right? We know social media just, we're so involved in it, it's just part of the air we breathe nowadays. But what is, even though social media is a great tool, it also has a, has a dark underbelly, doesn't it? One of the problems with it is that we create our own reality. We only let people see what we want them to see, Right? Oh, look at me, I'm doing my quiet time. Here's my Bible and here's, you know, all that, which is great. I'm not saying don't do that, but it, it's, it's a reality that we want people to see. Um, we, it's not that it's a false reality, but what, what does it lack? It doesn't tell the whole story, right? On the flip side, we only see what people want us to see, Right? So we don't have the whole story. Not only do we not give the whole story to people, we don't have the whole story when we go to judge motives on things we see on social media. And a lot of the things that we see, we're tempted to envy, right? We're tempted to see what someone else has 
whether it's a relationship, some material possession, we're, we're tempted to look at that and go, God, you're holding out on me. Why, why don't I have that? Why can't I have that life? It's no different than, than the sin of the garden. Eve's fundamental sin was, was thinking that God was withholding from her. And that's what we see here in, seven, in Psalm 73 is the psalmist is battling with what his eyes see and what he knows to be true of God. And he's trying to reconcile it and he's struggling. Because this is, this is what he sees. He finds himself and he, he's honest about it. He's honest about where his heart is. He says, my foot had almost slipped. I was envious of who? I was envious of the wicked. Now most of us would look and go, you're a knucklehead. Why are you envious of the wicked? They're the wicked. Of course you can't be envious of the wicked. But he acknowledges, hey, listen, I'm seeing things and I want them. And what is he envious of? He's envious of the fact that it appears that God's favor is resting on them. When When you read the Bible and you hear the rich describe, they've got a good life. And the assumption is that God has blessed them, that God's favor rests on them. And he's, he's trying to reconcile that. What is he envious of? He's envious, fundamentally, he's envious of the good fortune of the wicked. Why do they prosper and I struggle? He's envious of their wealth, verse three. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw what? The prosperity of the wicked. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease in what? They increase in riches. So he's envious of their wealth. He's envious of their health. Verse four, they have no pangs until death. They don't get cancer. They don't lose a wife. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Guess what? They've got all the food they need and then some. So he's envious of their wealth. He's envious of their health. He's also envious of of the ease of their life. So I have six kids, almost, and most people rightfully look at us and go, holy cow, how do you do that? And it is, it's a a joyful exercise, right? But it is, it's exercise. Chasing kids, disciplining kids, teaching kids, and not just teaching one, but teaching six. I look at other families, just in full disclosure, I look at other families with, you know, where the alligator, the little alligator is, is eating the, the right, no, it's the lower number. You remember the little alligator for the math, less than, equal to? Yeah. Uh, you've got two, three kids, even four, and I go, man, what that, like, the other day we were getting ready and Ashley had taken two of the kids out, and there was only four, and I was like, this isn't that bad. It's pretty crazy that when you have four in the house, you actually think, what a relief. Um, life is harder with a larger family. And it's not to say that life with one kid, two kids, three kids is any less difficult because God gives capacities to handle certain things. But at the end of the day, there are days where I'm just kind of like, whew, this is a lot. And I wish it was easier that's not to say I'm ungrateful. I'm not. I love my family. I, I don't care about the, the looks we got at Thanksgiving when we said, hey, we're having another one. And the family goes, como se dice? <laughs> You're doing what? Um, 
but, but there is that struggle that Ashley and I both battle in our own way. Life could be easier, but we have to remind ourselves it's not what God's given us. He's given us much more and, and he's given us what's best for us. But we look at it and we can, we can be just like the psalmist here. We, we can crave an easier life. Look at verses four and five. We've read four already, for they have no pangs until death. Life's easy when you're healthy, right? Uh, their bodies are fat and sleek. Life's easy when you have enough food to eat. Verse five though, they are not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They don't have a care in the world. They don't have to worry about, is my next paycheck gonna cover our mortgage? They don't have to worry, are my kids gonna eat? They don't, have, they don't worry about whether or not I'm gonna be able to provide for my children when they go off to college. They don't, they don't even question those things. They don't have to um, because they are well off and appear to have God's favor on their lives. Um, I love this story. It, I came across it in a class years ago and it, I love humor. I, I love to joke and have a good time. So th- this story I find hysterical. Um, but if you don't, that's your problem, not mine. Um, so listen to this. This is from Millard Erickson's book, Truth or Consequences. He says, uh, a mother was driving with her young daughter who was carrying in a bottle a bug she had found. The mother, who was deathly afraid of insects, had warned her daughter to be careful not to let the bug escape. But nonetheless, the daughter, after a time, said, Mommy, I think the bug got away. Shortly thereafter, the mother, feeling a strange discomfort in her right shoe, realized that she had found the bug. At the first opportunity, she pulled the car onto the shoulder, jumped out, and began stamping her foot trying to kill the bug by what resembled a convulsive seizure. Another motorist, seeing the woman in what he recognized from experience to be a seizure, pulled over as well, ran to the woman, threw her to the ground, and held her tongue to prevent her from swallowing it. As the woman struggled to free herself from the man who had to administer increasing force, a police car happened along. The two officers, amazed that a man would attempt to rape a woman alongside a busy freeway, quickly pulled their car over, ran to the woman, and pulled her attacker off her. Only after a considerable time was the misunderstanding resolved to the satisfaction of all parties. The woman got into her car to drive off, whereupon her frightened daughter, who had observed all the activity, said, Mommy, it's all right. I found the bug still in the bottle. Any one of those, you would have asked them, what do you see going on around you? You ask the mom, what I know is that there's a bug in my shoe and I'm killing that thing dead, right? Then you've got the good Samaritan. Oh man, I I have seizures or my kid has seizures. I've seen this before. That's a seizure. I have to stop. I have to help. So what does he do? He tackles her, holds her tongue, He's helping, so he thinks. The police, I can't believe this is happening. This guy is about to get the beatdown of all beatdowns. 
He's trying to do what? So they stop. From what they see, all they know is that there's a bug in their shoe. There's a woman suffering from a seizure. And there's a man attempting to attack a woman. But none of them see the whole story. None of them really know what's going on because they're seeing what they see. And what we need is someone just like they needed to get huddled up and figure out what exactly was going on. We need God to interpret life for us. We need his word to tell us this is real, this is not We have to have that because here's how Erickson finishes the story. He says, either we are given an interpretation of an event or we supply it ourselves and our interpretation may very well be inaccurate. And the thing that strikes me about that is it's so true. When we are limited to what we see, we start thinking things that aren't really real. Think of, think of the, the psalmist here. Because he's looking through his lenses, he's seeing reality. God, you're, you're blessing the wicked. He, he begins to question whether or not God's really good. And he begins to question and see others who are tempted to fall into the snares of the wicked. Look at what he does in, in verses uh, 6 through 9. Um, Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Um, Their eyes swell through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Uh, They they scoff. They speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. That's what they're doing. And look at the response of the people. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So there's this temptation to to kind of say, I'm going to follow along. Life seems to be going good for them. So at worst, when we don't have God's view of things, at worst, it leads to our destruction. We go right along with the wicked. At best, it handicaps us. Because look at what the psalmist does. Verse 13 All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's in this cycle of questioning but not getting answers. Look at verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, what? It seemed to me a wearisome task. He's worn out. It's exhausting to try to figure out what you're doing wrong or why they're being blessed when you don't have God's perspective on things. We need to remind ourselves and recognize that our perspective is limited. Um, God doesn't want us in this cycle. He doesn't want us in the hamster wheel just spinning, spinning, spinning asking the same questions over and over again and, 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 and giving our hearts over to envy. He doesn't want that for us. Notice when things change though. When do they change? Verse 17, it seemed, verse 16, excuse me, it seemed to me a 
wearisome task, this, this task of trying to understand, God, what are you doing? Why are you blessing the wicked? It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. We want answers to our questions. We want to know what God's doing, but we don't get that outside of God's presence. For some of us, you know, we don't make church and being with fellow believers on a regular basis enough of a, of a priority in our lives and yet we still want God to answer our prayers and to hear us and to listen to us. He's not gonna do that outside of his presence and right here, what we do together is a huge part of that. We're not gonna get God's answers until we're in God's presence freedom from envy, from wondering why your life seems so difficult and the lives of others so easy, doesn't come anywhere else but in God's presence. So the first thing we need to, to, to see and to recognize is that our perspective is limited and we're not gonna get a big full view of what actually is going on until we're in God's presence. But here's the second thing that we can implement the tool that we can use to fight envy in our own hearts to remind ourselves of God's goodness we, you need to remind yourself of God's goodness and he does this in several ways in in the passage here um, and it, it all turns on verse 17 so he goes into the sanctuary of God and what does he do he discerns therein God in his in God's presence he shows him what's going to happen he says, this is their end. Verse 18, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. If you go back and look what the wicked are guilty of, it's basically living a life that has no awareness that they are not God. No awareness that they are, just like the psalmist writes here, where are they? They're a phantom. When God comes, they're a vapor that is gone in an instant because they aren't God. And yet they strut around as though they are. Their pride is their necklace. They, they strut, their mouths, they set their mouths, verse nine, they set their mouths against the heavens. It's like the Tower of Babel we talked about last week or two weeks ago in our BFGs, they wanted to do what? They wanted to make a name for themselves. Um, and that's what the wicked here are doing. But God is gracious to actually answer the writer's appeal. He says, here's why you shouldn't envy the wicked. First reason is because God's gonna destroy the wicked. God is going to judge those who stand against him. That's not necessarily a popular thing nowadays because we're our own, cat, we're our own master, right? We do what we want to do when we want to do it and we want it 30 seconds ago. But God says one day he's coming to judge his enemies, to judge those who oppose him. So that's the first way that God shows his goodness is he says, hey, listen, you're not wrong to want things to be fair. 
God's made us, he's wired us to see injustice and to see unfairness and to say, that's not fair. And it's not being a three-year-old or a four-year-old to point that out. Now, sometimes we act like three and four-year-olds because it's, I have to drive a minivan, you know? This is so unfair. No, that's not at all an unfair thing. There are much worse things. And we're wired to recognize it and to speak out against it. But God graciously says, things will be set right. Things will be made right in the end. When Jesus comes, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's Lord and he's gonna set everything right. So every injustice that we see is going to be made right. So that's the first thing. He, 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 in his presence, he reminds the writer of the destruction of the wicked. But before we step out and, and think, oh yeah, you get them, God. Go get them. Go get my enemies. He warns us and encourages us that that's us. Apart from Christ, that is us. It's interesting, look at what he says in verse three. I, or excuse me, verse two. But as for me, my feet had what? Almost stumbled. My steps had what? Nearly slipped. What does he say about the, the wicked? Where does God place the wicked? Verse 18, he sets them in slippery places. The psalmist recognizes that he is, is, is tempted and to slip. My feet had almost slipped. But he, in his mercy, what does he do? Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. But what does he do? In God's, in, in God's grace, he shows his goodness in the fact that he's been very good to the writer. And he's been very good to us. Look at what he says. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. These are all the things that God has done for him. He shows him his goodness. He's there with him. He's near. And the psalmist's response, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. In other words, everything that I've experienced being stricken, smitten, rebuked on a daily basis, embracing suffering, that can continue. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He had nearly slipped. He had nearly become like the wicked. And God, in his mercy, shows him and reminds him of all the good things he's done and reminds him that God is your good. It's hard for us, isn't it? We think that we've done something. We think that we have, some, have brought something to the table that God responds to and saves us. The only thing we bring is our sin. The only thing we bring is, hey, I'm one of those guys in the slippery places. And unless you do something, 
I'm going to slide. We've been saved by faith. We are being saved by faith. And we will be saved by faith. We see it all throughout the scriptures. Think back to the message Dr. Cook preached a few weeks ago that there are pleasures, eternal, forever pleasures in God's presence. That's what he's promised us. That's what he holds out for us. And we see that same kind of thing here is that God is going to do this. He's not just gonna judge the wicked, but he's also going to bring us to himself to be in his presence forever. Um, the last thing we see though, that God, where God shows his goodness is he reminds the writer of the task of the righteous. There's two things there. In verse 28, it's to make God our refuge. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have, I have made the Lord God my refuge. So you've got God's action to, to be there, to be his counsel, to be near him, where God is the, is the one doing it. But then you've also got the psalmist saying, I've done this. How do we fight envy? It, we see God's goodness, but we have to be the active in this as well. Make the Lord your refuge. I have made the Lord God my refuge. So one task that we have is to make God our refuge. But the second thing, the end of verse 28, why? That I may tell of all your works. How do we fight envy? Maybe for some of us, it's to get up and do something. It's to talk, to tell of God's works, of what he's done in Jesus and how Jesus has impacted our lives. So there's two things. As we look out and what we see doesn't match what we know to be true of God, there's two things we need to do. We need to recognize that our perspective is limited and we need to remind ourselves God's good. God is good. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you have plucked us from the slippery places. God, you didn't leave us there. And God, even when we are tempted to return, you come alongside us. You're our counsel, our strength, our refuge. God, I pray that we would find our joy, our satisfaction in you. And God, you would give us eyes to see your goodness in the ways that you have worked in our lives in the past and the way that you will work in the future to fulfill every promise that you've made to us as your people. God, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you would plant this word deep in our hearts and that we would bear much fruit from it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.